BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza and today I'm here with myself because I've been getting so many questions on direct message from my Instagram, which I love. So please keep sending them to me and I will eventually get to answering all of them. But today I'm starting with a selection, addressing some discipline and limit setting, some follow-up questions Um, about last week's praise episode. Also a question about the difference between shame and guilt when it comes to correcting behavior and more. And then I'm going to talk about the first year of sleep. And joining me for that segment is my Seedlings Group private practice co-founder for the past 13 years, developmental psychologist, Dr. Bronwyn Charlton. We are going to answer frequently asked questions about that first year of sleep. So the first question is, My four-year-old daughter has been saying, I love you 10,000 times a day for the last few weeks. Of course, this fills my heart, but I'm also worried that she might be worrying about my husband and I loving her. She's one, an only child, and she's adopted from birth. I hope this is a typical phase. I just want to tell you that a lot of times, and it is so wild and delicious to hear I love you um, from a one-year-old, but a lot of times one-year-olds repeat new words or phrases, if they're particularly verbal, that they are getting to know over and over. And because of the response that they get from their parents or from other people, the positive, no doubt, especially with I love you, smiles and and happy, joyful feelings, they then keep repeating it. And so it can become sort of a bit. And because you have the weight of wondering as an adult if there's deeper meaning or if it's related to the fact that she's an only child or adopted, you might be projecting your own fears and worries. But it is totally typical for a one-year-old to learn a phrase and repeat it over and over. So just enjoy it while it lasts. The next question is, lately I've been feeling I'm being such a bad parent. I tend to overreact and probably make my daughter feel bad more than teach her positively. How do we not overreact in the moment? I always feel awful when she tells me, I'm sorry, I want to be a good girl. Because of course, I know she does. So the most effective kind of criticism is problem solving. And usually when we're frustrated with our kids, that's the last thing from our mind. And ultimately, your goal is to help your child think of a better way to manage a situation. So you really, you want to use the phrase, can you think of a better way? Studies show that what kind of corrections you use are actually important. So you don't want to just criticize your child. You want to actually make sure that your child comes up with a better plan. And if they don't have a good idea for a plan, instead of just thinking she's bad or good, 
try to talk to her in terms of just her behavior. She is always a good human being. She is wonderful. Her behavior wasn't good. That's a very important distinction because if you keep getting told that you are bad, that you are a bad girl today, you'll start to internalize that and think, I guess I am. And it makes you kind of give up or have a cycle of the kind of experience you're having. So really making sure that you don't criticize the person, you criticize the behavior. All right. Next, we have a question. My daughter is turning nine and has invited 15 girls from school to her birthday party. There are 80 kids in her entire grade. We've talked about not being able to invite everyone, so she needs to be quiet at school so others don't feel left out, which she understands. Anyway, there are two girls she feels strongly she doesn't want to invite. She says they're mean and bossy. Problem is, we know the parents socially. Do I push to include or do I let her honor how she feels? Help. So you can pretty much separate your social life with your daughters. It's always a conundrum with birthday parties, but of course you can't have 80 people. And so you're going to get into these situations all the time. Also, you might be friends with some parents that your child was, you know, your child had a great relationship with their child long ago, but over the years, kids develop different friendships and they move through groups and it's totally normal. So as long as your daughter is sensitive to the fact that other people are not invited and doesn't mention it, if your friends say to you, hey, how come you didn't invite our kids? You can just simply say, I gave a certain number, a limited number to my daughter, and those are the people that she chose to invite. That's completely reasonable, and they're probably going to experience the same thing. So I think that last week's episode, I got a lot of questions and comments about it. I think it really confused some people because it sounded like we were saying praise is the worst thing in the world. To clarify, for a two-year-old, there is lots of research that giving positive reinforcement for teaching pro-social behaviors, for helping get behaviors that you want to see again, and for things like developing motivation for a new skill is totally fine. You don't want to overdo it. So I would say in answer to the first question, do a little bit of praise for things that you don't feel need to have internal motivation and pull back a little bit. When your child brings you a drawing, instead of saying, wow, that's amazing, just say, oh, you did a drawing. So you're interested, you're taking an interest in your child, but you're not judging their artwork as good or bad. It just is. And that way, cut to the next answer, which is about the nine-year-old, you won't be in a situation where every time your child is doing something, they're bringing their art to you or their music to you or their work to you for your approval. Now, sometimes it's about temperament. So some kids just have a higher need for connection and approval from parents. And in some cases, it's also their need mixed with your natural desire to connect with them and make them feel good can end up years later in a situation where you feel like they need your approval in order to feel satisfied. So Let's talk about productive praise and the right way to praise kids. There's actually a lot of research that some praise can be powerful and motivating if you follow the following guidelines. First, you want to be sincere and specific when you praise a child's performance. So it's not good job. It's, I noticed that you put your shoes on the first time I asked. You also want to praise a child only for traits that they have the power to change which is why you try not to praise your child for how they look. That's genetic or how they 
you know, how smart they are, but you want to focus on the things that they did, like they put a nice outfit together. You want to use descriptive praise that conveys realistic, attainable standards. So not that really exaggerated language of like, this is amazing. You're the best star in the world. And so you want to be careful also about praising kids for achievements that come easily to them because that's when they can stop being motivated to do the things that are challenging. So if your kid is an incredible um, singer and they sing all day and it's just beautiful to listen to, just let them enjoy it. They're obviously motivated on their own. You don't even need to comment. You can certainly enjoy listening and smile, but you can just kind of sit back and watch. And you want to also be careful about praising kids for doing what they already love to do. So again, with the singing example, let's say your child loves singing. If you constantly interrupt to just say how amazing their singing is, they might lose that motivation. You really want to encourage kids to focus on mastering skills. And so you don't want to compare them to other people. It's also important to be sensitive to to where your child is. So of course, a two-year-old is going to need a little extra positive praise for certain behaviors. Babies and toddlers can benefit from that encouragement to help them explore on their own. There's actually research that found that three-year-old kids were more likely to tackle challenges and persist at a task when they had been encouraged and praised by their mother about their independence when they were two years old. But older kids are just more sophisticated and they might interpret praise in a negative way. They might feel manipulated or they might think you're trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do, or you're trying to trick me into feeling confident. So as kids mature, you have to just know that they become aware of your possible motives. And if they perceive that they're not sincere, they might dismiss it or feel really bad and feel manipulated. On the other hand, they could feel like you're totally serious. It is true and become too self-absorbed. So the sincerity is very important. And being sincere with your praise can really help decide when you want to praise. Because if you really look at the art, did it look like Picasso's art or was it just like super cool considering their age and the fact that they're your kid? If that's the case, maybe you dial it back. So a lot more on praise, but remember, as we talked about last week, try being a witness to your child's experiences rather than a judge. So the last question is, I've heard you say we aren't supposed to shame our kids, but does that mean we shouldn't talk to them about the consequences of their behavior? You absolutely should talk about the consequences of your child's behavior. So in no way, when I say not to shame your kids, do I mean that you shouldn't talk about their behavior and the consequences. In fact, it's one of the most important parts of our job as parents. But there's an important distinction between feelings of shame and feelings of guilt. So when we shame kids, we tend to kind of have them live up to the negative expectations and they start to go into a stress mode, a stress response. Whereas when we problem solve, they have an optimistic way of imagining themselves doing better. So it makes for less giving up. And then the other thing is, is that shame and guilt are different because guilt makes us focus on the people that we've harmed. So it encourages us to make amends, to make things right. In essence, shame is something that does the opposite. It can make you recoil and feel like hiding under a table or in the closet. Whereas 
guilt is a socially constructive emotion. It's our conscience encouraging us to do better. So that's the feeling of guilt, which you can explain to your kids when they get that icky feeling, you know, when they did something wrong and they know they did something wrong, you can explain that's guilt. And so, of course, you can explain that their misdeeds are unacceptable and you can ask them to consider the feelings of the people that they might have hurt or the other kids that they've taken from or hit or any of those things because that helps with empathy, which is also an important part of their development. But you can do these things without making kids feel that hopelessness or humiliation of shame. And now we're going to go into the first year of sleep and frequently asked sleep questions with Dr. Bronwyn Charlton. So this is going to blow your mind. Rothy's are made from repurposed plastic water bottles. Rothy's has diverted over 35 million, that is so incredible, 35 million water bottles from landfills already. And another major bonus, they are fully machine washable, and every time they need a refresh, you can toss them in the washing machine. Rothy's owns and operates their manufacturing workshop where they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. So they ship directly in their shoebox. No unnecessary packaging. They are just a feel-good flat in more ways than one. And they're the perfect everyday shoe for life on the go. You can walk for miles in them. They're stylish and comfortable, which is very hard to find. And they go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They come in ever-changing arrays of colors and prints and patterns. And they are, again, still made of repurposed plastic water bottles, but in these awesome colors. My daughter, who cares deeply about the environment, is so thrilled to have her Rothy's because she knows that she's taking bottles out of landfills by wearing them, and they're comfortable and cool, and she doesn't feel as guilty because her feet are growing so much that she'll probably have to get another pair by the time I finish this ad. They have playful designs that add fun pops of color, and they can make outfits fun and still look polished and professional. They are ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. There is zero break-in period for these shoes. Go to R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash H-U-M-A-N-S to get your new favorite flats for comfort, style, and the most important part, sustainability. These are the shoes that we've all been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash humans today. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different and um, read some common questions that have come up from parents of new babies about sleep. Before we get into the questions, I just want to give like top five sleep tips for the newborn set. And Bronwyn, chime in here if Mm -hmm. I've forgotten anything. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, in the first few months of life, infants just need to be given the opportunity to sleep every hour and a half to two hours of wakefulness. So that's about all that's on the agenda for them in those first six mm-hmm. weeks of life mm-hmm. is just making sure that Help they get an opportunity to sleep. And we always remind people that, of course, in an ideal world, and and you want to be safe. So safe sleep includes sleeping on a firm mattress or co-sleeper that is attached to your bed and um, always, always on their backs. And they can be swaddled at this age. You just don't want to have the swaddle too tight around their hips. And they don't really need to worry about noise and light as much Mm -mm. because they're just not. And you don't really have to be afraid about setting up bad habits Mm -hmm. at that point, like motion or ergos or carriers. Bad habits will be easily 
fix later. So not to worry, just love them, respond to them. And in terms of sleep, every hour and a half to two hours of wakefulness. And if sometimes they cry, like it's, it feels like something is horribly wrong and you assume that they're starving. And oftentimes it truly is because they're exhausted and they've only been awake for an hour. So it doesn't make sense to you, but you really want to give them the opportunity to sleep. Sometimes they tug at their ear, they rub their eyes. That's probably past the point where they needed to go back down. Um, So then around six to eight weeks, they can organize their day and night sleep. So they should have their longest stretch in the nighttime. And you really don't want to let that happen during the day. So if they're sleeping longer than two hours during the day, give them a little wake up. Um, That goes against the never wake a sleeping baby. Um, Maybe you can expand to three hours, um, but not past that. That way, when they take their longest stretch, you'll be able to start the process of night sleep and teaching them. If they're getting confused and they really have trouble during the day, they're super tired and they're wide awake at night, try to make it very obvious, keep the curtains open and make a little bit more noise, right? And then at night, be really clear that it's nighttime sleep and delicious, but quiet. (laughs) Um, And then we really start to get into around three months, some not sleep training in the sense that there's no cry it out at that age, but good sleep habits, um, like continuing to put them down every hour and a half to two hours of wakefulness, but really setting up the routine, um, which you can really start again anytime after six weeks, of whatever you're going to do at bedtime. Bath, mm-hmm. cuddles, songs. Mm-hmm. Making it dark. Mm-hmm. Um, usually that's a nice time for a feed, the last feed, sort of a routine, yeah. establishing your routine. Even if, even though the time will change and you have to be flexible at what time that is, it's the idea that it's just going to be the same thing every day. And once you've decided that it's bedtime, that it remains bedtime, even, even if they're awake, it's the night tone up until the morning. So even if they get up four times in the night, it's not a playful time. Mm-hmm. It's a snuggly, sweet time. Yeah. Um, And then at three months, you can start to let them get a little bit uncomfortable when it's nap time, just to get them used to not falling asleep in your arms in case they have But do know that the more uncomfortable they seem, most likely it's ironically that they're actually overtired. So if you get them down actually a little bit earlier, they might more seamlessly doze off Mm -hmm. than when they're too tired. And now here's a question from... Well, I don't have a name for you because it's confidential. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm going to— It's from a um, mom? Yeah, it's from a mom <laughs> okay. of a three-month-old. And the question is, this is very detailed, but you know what? <laughs> Moms of three-month-olds get in the weeds of these details, and we totally and get And th- these are most—these are very frequently asked questions yeah. over 12 years of doing seedlings now at this point. Um, so the question is, my three-month-old started sleeping through the night, meaning he'd have a bottle at 7 p.m., and then not again until 7 a.m. three weeks ago when he was seven weeks old. Um, which, which is mathematically note, this is me. very, very young, not yeah. to be expected. Don't ever. This, I was going to say, what a depressing <laughs> one to start with. This guy, people no, are going to be like, no. this <laughs> can happen. River. It does happen, but very infrequently. He's been, so you could translate this. Right. Why is she emailing? Yeah. <laughs> you can translate this for, you know, a little bit older of a child as well. He's been drinking four eight-ounce bottles a day, one oh formula my, and again. three best, breast milk <laughs> since then. So that's a very regimented um, program a for a little baby. And milk and one feed for a six, seven-week-old. Yeah. So if they can take that amount of milk 
fine. But if they're spitting up a lot of milk, it's because you're overfeeding (laughs) them. Uh, So for the past 10 days or so, the evenings have been hell. Here's the routine. He gets his fourth bottle anytime between 5.45 and 6.30 and is put to bed sometime between 6.30 and 7.30. And it's very easy to put him to sleep. He's awake. I swaddle him. And half the time, he's fidgety enough for me to give him a pacifier. The other half of the time, he's relaxed and I just leave. In either Still, case, people are wondering where the this hell is, is where, coming Where's the in? question? Where's the torture? Um, so, well, I'll interrupt this question regarding pacifier and just say there, there was a tone that it's a negative thing that he was getting a pacifier, but actually pacifiers, babies are meant to suck. It gives them an incredible sense of calm. They, it's a reflex. Yeah. If you don't want to be their pacifier, we highly recommend, maybe, you know, a dentist isn't going to agree with us eventually, but we're big proponents as... At least until six months. Yes. This is, these are infants we're yeah. talking about. And the truth is a lot of times people misinterpret the f- reflex of sucking by putting their pinky in their baby's mouth and they'll suck thinking they're hungry. They but just it's wanted actually, that calm. Right, right. Um, so in either case, he's asleep within five minutes and no fussing. Okay. This is like a practical Again, they're joke. wondering where the hell of the evening um, comes in. <laughs> but every night, about 30 to 40 minutes later, he begins to stir, which turns into fussiness. The fussiness turns into crying and the prying, crying turns into wailing. It takes about an hour or two for him to get to the point of really crying. And during that hour, we're both, you can't see our faces, but we're both super confused by what the, <laughs> what this is about. He's falling in and out of sleep. When he finally gets to wailing, I go in, I soothe him. And this is about an hour or two of pacifier tag. He takes it, it falls out, he wakes up. This happens all night until 7 a.m. So this makes more sense, yeah. actually. <laughs> what happened, I think, is this, <laughs> this was probably an infant who had really good luck in the beginning, but That's is right. just coming, you know, getting to the point where he's like... He's waking up. Yeah, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. This, is, this is... So, Bronwyn, what would you say to this? I'm yeah. Like, you know, this happens a lot when you do have one of those seamlessly sleeping babies or seamlessly calming themselves down with tantrums later on, and then all of a sudden you run into some problems. So basically, um, this child just needs to be helped um, it sounds like the the parents, because they were so used to him or her sleeping so well, they're now jumping right into sort of a cry it out approach or a, a hardcore sleep training approach. But you could probably take a little bit more gentle approach since you're really starting from ground zero in the sense of teaching the baby how to sleep well. And also to think about how much sleep this baby's losing in the night because they're being allowed to cry for such long periods of time. And you always have to remind yourself that with young children that when they miss out on sleep and when they're tired, sleep becomes more difficult. So the first thing I'd suggest is probably catching a baby like this up on sleep. Um, You know, so if you have had this and who hasn't had a baby who's not sleeping well, do know that the best thing you can do is make up for that as much as you can in the day. Um, So the first thing would be to really focus on getting the baby some really good sleep on day one um, during the day because that will help him sleep better at night. Um, The second thing would be to not worry at all about the pacifier if the baby enjoys a pacifier, but to know that at least until the age of about four months when they have the fine motor skills to pop it back into their own I mean, mouth. Good if even If even <laughs> four months, you know, it, the range could even be almost up to six yeah, months, particularly sure. if they're not getting the chance to sort of play around with it in the day. I mean, frankly, if your baby has a pacifier, there's no nothing wrong with sprinkling it on the floor when they're doing tummy time or in the 
them, you know, your four-month-old to use it as an exercise of them picking it up, trying to put it in their mouth. It's good hand-eye coordination mm-hmm. and fine motor skills. Finding a mouth is a very difficult That's right, thing. right, right. So this, and then the next part would be is how to respond to the baby now that it's really starting to wake up and give the mom a hard time. So the first part would be is it. Is it. <laughs> Sorry, he, she. I, I, I didn't catch the gender. I think it was a he. he. We're going to decide um, it's a he. <laughs> Um, did I say it? Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> um, but basically realizing that at, I believe they said about three months, it was mm-hmm. a little bit confusing about the age, but around three months, 12 weeks, it's not, the baby's not ready to do cry it out or sleep training that's formal like that. Usually they recommend holding off until about four months. But at this point, what the mom could do is really make sure she's getting him down before he's becoming way overtired. When he is overtired, when any of your babies are overtired, their body produces something called cortisol, which all of our bodies produce. And that is a natural sort of stimulant, if you will, to keep us awake when we're past tired, just like a second wind for any of us adults um, in the night. And so if she gets him down earlier, it will be more likely he'll be able to sleep better. The second is that when he does start to stir, as many, many young babies do, since he's probably not developmentally ready for a cry it out um, method, it's best for her actually to go in sooner than later before he becomes so overstimulated from so much crying and to help soothe him back into a sleep uh, before that. So, you know, when he's stirring, sure, to give your baby four or five minutes to see if maybe they'll be, you know, stir and just be a little uncomfortable and then go back to sleep. But everyone can read their baby and listen to their baby and you know when they're escalating. So try to get in there before then so you can actually soothe him, calm him down by doing the least amount of work possible, meaning it's not necessarily a time to nurse or to stick in a bottle, but giving a passy, maybe a little shh and a little pat and trying to get them back to that drowsy, calm state so that they can then go back to sleep is ideal. And the same goes for throughout the night. I mean, I think that this baby probably is waking constantly, consistently throughout the night because he wasn't being helped to go back to sleep in the first place. So it was just a domino effect of being incredibly overtired, overstimulated, and probably hungry at Mm -hmm. some point. He's very young. He might still need, I was thinking, he might still need one middle of the night feeding and then you can try pulling it away a month later. more at 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Yeah. And I noticed also the bedtime, she she said 7 p.m. It may be an earlier bedtime is necessary. Sometimes that actually causes a wake up shortly after you go to bed. Right. I wouldn't even think of of the clock and the, a time as being a bedtime at this age. Right. Um, it's too, it's almost too organized. Like sort of even just being able to think about when his last sleep of the day was, then sometime within a two-hour frame until then, and then, you know, putting him to bed. So it could be quite early mm-hmm. and it could be later. Usually mm-hmm. brain, you know, brain development has a lot to do with organized sleep and you'll begin to see more predictable times and more regular sleep during the day as the brain matures. Um, And this is quite early at this point. The other thing that I noticed about this is that he's being swaddled and it may be Mm. usually around eight or 10 weeks, but certainly by three months, they need to not be in their swaddle anymore, or at the very least 
take their arms out, take his arms out. Yeah. That yeah. could just be I bothering mean, you, him. You, if you speak to your pediatrician, some of them will say they want them out of the swaddles by four months. And again, you know, each child is different. This is just generally speaking, you really can begin to tell when they're fighting it and that's stimulating right. They as don't well. need it. <laughs> right, right. And after four months, they need to work on gross motor development mm-hmm. and movement in their crib. And sure, you might have a couple of bad nights when they're when you're taking it off initially, but they will begin to sleep actually better when they can get themselves comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so start with removing arms from the swaddle, and then you can move on to a sleep sack. Okay. I cannot get my three-month-old to sleep more than 30 minutes during the day. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought it was related to gas. Every new baby, everybody <laughs> thinks that it's gas. gas. But now I see it as because he cannot or get— Or teething. Then it yes. becomes teething. But now I see it as he cannot get into the next sleep cycle. I tried a few things, but I feel desperate as I know it is making him more and more upset. Do you have any suggestions? Is he too young to do cry it out? Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, first of all, I just want to say quickly, and this is easy now that I have three older children. My youngest is now turning five this summer. Oh my God, I didn't mention that you have that I, Yeah, I'm babies. also a mom. <laughs> but, um, but is that, first of all, if you're focused on sleep and you care about your child's sleep, what that means is you're going to help raise a good sleeper. And when, particularly for those of you not belittling at all, Elise and I were in the same boat, but with your oldest, you do feel a lot of anxiety and stress about each nap and how many minutes it was and whether they're going to be poor sleepers the rest of their lives and you can't handle this, waking up through the night. And I and I promise you this, that if you care about sleep and you're focused on helping your child become a good sleeper, they will. Mm-hmm. And you'll, this will, when you look back, it'll be a tiny, tiny blip in the timeline of their lives. It's just the most important number one is that you care about sleep and it's important to you. So that's my little soapbox. But the next part is, um, the naps. Naps mm-hmm. really stress out a lot of people because they'll talk to their girlfriend whose three-month-old is taking a two-hour nap every morning and a two-hour nap in the afternoon. So the first th- the first piece of information is that there's a lot of variability on sleep needs. And also at three months, day sleep still isn't that organized. So what's happening right now isn't what's going to be happening at six or seven months, for sure, if you're, if you're helping your child sleep well. Um, the second part, I'm sure Aliza has, you know, something to add as well, but is that usually a good rule of thumb um, when it comes to the sleep research is as long as your child's taking about a 35 to 40 minute nap, it can, it is considered restorative, 40, 40 minutes. I mean, Aliza's giving me hand signals that it's 40, but I'm <laughs> no, trying No, I was to, saying 50. 50. Well, okay, so— but it's this, hard this to just get goes to, that. to show it's everything with research is a bell curve. If you if you totally. were with me, I would be doing a little making the symbol of a bell curve. And that means that somewhere in a range is pretty typical. And so when it comes to naps, what happens with some children is, as this mother referred to, the sleep cycle. And that is they go into a deep sleep cycle. And then when they get into the, the sort of lighter sleep cycle, they wake. So they're only sleeping one sleep cycle. The thing is, is that one thing, two things. One is if your child is taking a very, very short nap, a cat napper at 30, you know, at three months, four months, then the things that you can do to help them sleep longer, um, I wouldn't jump right to cry it out, particularly Mm -hmm. not at three months, but I would consider how long the window has been that they've been awake. So often these are still considered sort of a newborn range of time awake. and, And usually 
you know, you might have heard that they can only be awake for two hours, you know, and then after two hours, they start to become overstimulated. There are some kids that literally can only be awake for an hour and 20 minutes, and they really Mm -hmm. want to sleep. And by the way, I get it that life happens and you can't always be at home putting your babies in a crib. But even if you just, you know, strap them on in a carrier, you know, it's helping them get sleep and that will make them sleep better. So that's number one. Sometimes they've just been awake for too long. And so what happens is you sort of have to do the work to put them down to get them to sleep. And then they wake up. You know, and that's that horrible feeling as a parent when 15 minutes later they're screaming, crying, you know, and you're getting upset that they're not getting enough sleep. So the second part is, is how you're feeding them, actually. And that is sometimes when babies are eating, sort of snacking throughout the day, where, like, I mean, all of us have been here where you're already always kind of a little bit hungry. Like, sure, I'll just have a little bit. I'll have a little bit. Rather than taking full meals, they really are kind of a little bit hungry. So think about how you're— giving them sleep in the day, that they're not too overtired when you're putting them down if you're getting really short naps. Also think about their feeding schedule. So you may be thinking about feeding on demand, but the demand actually probably is decreasing. So it's spreading. It's going longer and longer. So make sure you're not just feeding your baby out of habit every hour and a half just because they do a little whimper or they seem a little fussy. It's not always the food. And in fact, at around three months, they certainly majority, remember your baby's not a robot, but the majority can probably go three hours, you know, some four. And that really, you know, bodes well for sleep. And then the final piece is how you protect their sleep environment at this point. So unlike the newborns, as they're going into the fourth month, they're now waking Mm. up to the world. And where it used to be that they'd take a nap in their stroller or a nap in the living room, they're now much more likely to be stimulated and woken up by sounds. So as much as you can, it is a good idea to try to sort of protect their environment at this age. And then final bullet point is when they do wake up after 20 minutes, how you respond you know, at three months, I'm not suggesting that you would just leave them to cry, but you may not call it a day with that 20 minutes. So if they've been, you know, it's 20 minutes, they're now waking up, try to go in there before they become overstimulated and crying and very, very awake to lull them back into a sleep without feeding them because then they'll begin to rely on it. So giving them their pacifier, rubbing their back, helping them go back to take more sleep since sleeping well will make them sleep better at the next nap. Great. I have nothing to add. Okay. Um, Next question. My son is now eight months old, crawling and pulling himself up. Since he's been pulling up, he has weirdly dropped his nap for the past three days. Before this, he was sleeping two hours in the morning and one hour around 2.30 or 3 p.m. I have kept the routine the same. His room is cool, (laughs) etc. But I'm laughing not because of that, but just it is so true. There is a rite of passage to want to be perfect the first time you have a baby. And you, of course, it's a natural and developmental to want to be perfect because you made a human (laughs) and are raising a human being. And everyone's telling you how important these things are. So we are too. But at the same time, it's also a rite of passage to get past the wanting it to be perfect and accept that it never will be perfect. Never be, and yeah. if you try to make it perfect, it will be totally miserable in the process. And so. and also the funny thing is that the, a lot of the things that we're striving to be perfect in are not 
really that influential on the right. human we're they raising. Don't even, right. They don't actually like influence. A person with a moral compass and compassionate and motivated and all these things. So that said— Give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. <laughs> but we, we understand we've because been there. we've all—everybody we, yes. who's had a baby— has had the experience of wanting so much to just get it perfectly. So, um, and keep all the details and write all the mm-hmm. notes and say when they pooped and all of these things. But over time, and this again, it's totally appropriate to ignore that we're saying this right now and give yourself a break for wanting to be perfect, but eventually getting to a place where you don't fixate on the minutia so that you can relax and look, you know, see the forest through the trees will be more helpful. That said, it is totally normal and typical for an eight-month-old who's starting to crawl and pull themselves up to now not want to uh, nap mm-hmm. because they have a they have stuff to do. Right. Um, but maybe that wasn't the question. Let's see. I've kept <laughs> I've kept the routine the same. His room is cool, et cetera. Blah blah blah. Um, he takes an occasional nap in the stroller or the car, but otherwise doesn't sleep in the crib during the day. The only other thing is that the nanny has been away for two weeks and I've been with him. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so no, just kidding. <laughs> we just got the answer. So maybe the change in routine is throwing him off. Yeah. Okay. So I think if, I think inadvertently, the mom, <laughs> the only other thing detail is the thing, which is for the most part, it is much easier for a caregiver or anyone but mom to keep the routines. Or dad. Or dad to keep the routines and have no glitches or skip naps or desperation to come out of the crib because it's much more emotional for us. Mm -hmm. And we... It's the same. It's not even just your sitter. It's the same as your nursery school teacher. Anybody else. Right. They they can set limits and, and... and stick to them much easier than us. Right. We have a natural and appropriate sense of pain when we think that our kids are struggling or suffering. And that includes if they're even laughing in the crib and we're not with them. Yeah. Like they're beginning from the moment they're born. There's even research that mothers rate their newborn's cries, their own newborn's cries as if they're being attacked by wolves and every other newborn's cries, ah, he's just complaining. He's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Push the afternoon nap a little bit later and it's just a shift of what's going on. So if a, a baby doesn't fall asleep within about 20 minutes of being put down for a nap or bedtime, it's an indicator that you may have an either overtired or not tired enough kid and that you want to tweak You got to think about it in context. Mm -hmm. You know, and also I will say that when this kind of thing happens, everyone is going to try to convince you at different time points in your baby's life that they're done with their nap. Oh, this must be, this is like my cousin. He was finished with his nap when he was nine months old. So don't let anyone try to persuade you into dropping the nap completely. And because it's not until 15 months, 50% of kids are still taking two naps a day. It's not even until 15 months that 50% are dropping to one. And that's only 50%. So naps are very, very, very relevant and important. And one thing that I would think, you know, in this case is the mom mentioned that it'd been two weeks. That's a lot of lost sleep. So ideally, this child needs to sleep to be able to sleep. So another thing that could really help in this situation, if you're ever in this situation, and who hasn't been? I mean, whether it's a sitter leaving, so you're a little bit thrown off, or you go on vacation, or your child gets sick, everyone has a situation where they don't nap well, that another way to fix that is to get 
put them down at, in a very, very early bedtime. So, I mean, when I say early, this shocks a lot of people, but it literally could be as early as 515. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't worry about your child waking up in the middle of the night, waking up at three in the morning for the day. The likelihood of that happening is much, much greater if you don't fix the sleep debt. And this is one way to do it. And it literally, it usually only lasts for about two nights, three nights at most, this early bedtime, because they start sleeping again in the daytime. And and the final point, I just want to add this, is it's kind of funny, but it's not admitting anything like like fallibility or anything as a parent to ask your sitter, if you have a regular sitter, what works for you? How do you respond? It's not saying like, you're the you're a better parent than I am. It's just saying, you're, you're the one that typically does this in the day when I'm at work or when I'm not here. So what do you do when he doesn't sleep or when he pulls up, like, you know, and, and probably what they'll say is I just let him be. And usually he falls asleep. And if he doesn't, I'll put him down earlier for his next nap. But I think because it throws a lot of us off or a lot of parents off, they'll rush in, they'll start reading books, they'll start singing songs, you know, doing anything they can to get this child to sleep. And in fact, what happens is the child now is completely motivated to stay awake because mommy's home and mommy's willing to do all these great things. So often our best intentions backfire. Okay, here's the last question. I have to get rid of this 10 to 10.30 waking. I mean, the boys are almost seven months old. So I think this is obviously coming from a mom of twins. (laughs) Uh, Okay, um, so just very quickly, when you have twins, things are a little, have to be a little bit more rigid in terms of schedule. So this isn't necessarily um, the same answer that we would give for um, actually, in this case, it probably Since is the same either months, way because yeah. they're seven months old. So now you can do one of three things um, at that 1030 waking. You can do cry it out. You can do gradual, slower crying it out or gradual extinction. Um, what a terrible phrase that is. I've never extinction. really thought about it, but that is the phrase that we use behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> or you can do any soothing you want, just not coming out of the crib. Um, So it's totally, totally up to you. And I think this opens us up to quickly addressing the issue of cry it out at Mm -hmm. all. Yeah. There is no scientific evidence that the short-term intervention of letting a baby cry when it's developmentally age-appropriate, so never before 16 weeks. um, And getting the okay with your pediatrician that they're thriving. mm -hmm, and And all is well. And this is just about helping them learn how to fall asleep. There's nothing that is associated with negative relationships, sensitivity, problems with your relationship with your mother, whatever anybody's worries are brain mm-hmm. um, brain Stress. development. In fact, no matter what, and it's not that we're a proponent of crying it right. out or not. Actually, we're pretty neutral. We just know the science is kids need sleep, sleep. and they need consolidated sleep mm-hmm. and how and it's influenced by parents. And the science argues for sleep. So sleep is trumps right, the right. experience it, of those yeah. temporary cranks. It's not selfish because you're a better parent when you're getting sleep as well. Right. Now, you don't want to do it too early. That's a problem um, because they really need those first months to feel safe and secure and that you're always going to respond. But once they have established that, it's okay for the few nights that it takes to let them cry and get themselves back to sleep. Always it's easier to make sure first that they fall asleep awake but drowsy so you're not putting them to bed asleep because then when they wake up, they have to figure out how to get back to sleep on their own. It's much easier. And sometimes you can avoid 
middle of the night crying it out altogether if you just get them to a point where they can fall asleep on their own. And that's often easier just emotionally because you know, well, I just changed them. They're fed. They're fed. Everything is okay. So this is just painful for me and I'm teaching them something. Now, if you have to know yourself. If you have the kind of personality that that's just going to be so painful that you're going to break in that room and pull them out of the crib and say, I love you. I'm here and I'm so sorry. I've done that to you. Don't do cry it out. You don't have to. You can teach them. It takes a little bit longer, but you can just teach them that they can get a little bit uncomfortable. You'll go in, you'll soothe them. You can give them passy. You can cuddle with them. But over the course of a couple of weeks, you'll make the soothing less and less um, between you two and interactive and more just minimal. Like think of um, the amount of soothing you do sort of on the rungs of a ladder, the top of the ladder being giving it all, a bottle, nursing, mm-hmm. snuggling, cooing, you know, singing, all of those things. And the bottom of the ladder being, you're not relevant. You're not requisite. They don't need you. They can sleep well on their own. And you're trying to remove, you're trying to lower yourself down the ladder to get to that place so that your child has nothing to wake up for. They they would all, they would rather just sleep, which mm-hmm. is really what you want them to do. And so you can take as long as you want to do that. The the first challenge is making sure you're not feeding them during that time. But then after that, you just go, like Bronwyn said, with the rungs to the mm-hmm. bottom rung until you just don't need to do anything anymore. And then there's the third style, which is that you gradually time how much time they can cry. Time how much time they can cry. <laughs> and go in after a certain amount of time and then, sh- and then lengthen that amount of time yeah. over the days until they get to a point where it's they're gone. just they they're, don't care yeah, anymore. Yeah. Um, now, the one thing just to alleviate the stress that some people have, and again, you can go, you can never do cry it out. But if you do want to do cry it out, if you find that your infant is crying for days and days and days, and it's not getting better, after a few days, stop and know that they're not ready yet, and you can start again in a few weeks, and, and make sure that they're sleeping well in the day too. Yes, it's not just that they're overtired. And the other thing is, is there are some books that there's one in particular. I feel like I don't even mind saying what book, but is it a positive? No, it's not positive. (laughs) Is that bad? I don't know. (laughs) So there's a, there's a book when many of the points are really good, but this is really, I think a toxic extreme point to make, which is saying to moms that if you let your baby at an age appropriate time, cry it out, that it does brain damage akin to when kids were in Romanian orphanages and they did studies on Mm. neglectful, neglected children and how they had failure to thrive because nobody went to them when they were crying. So it uses that brain research. This is Dr. Sears's book. And a lot of moms use that book and he uses the Romanian orphanages research and he doesn't say that it's the Romanian orphanages. He says there were studies on neglected children. I mean, I haven't, maybe they've done, maybe it's been redone. I haven't read it in years, but it says studies of neglected kids left for days without cuddling (laughs) and being attended to had failure to thrive, even though they were fed, et cetera. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a loving, warm, sensitive, responsive caregiving experience where for a brief few days in the middle of the night or to fall asleep, you allow your kid to be uncomfortable so that they can learn how to fall asleep on their own and get good sleep. That's it. That is not associated with anything close to a neglected child. In fact, there's actually longitudinal research now uh, showing that over time— 
that, as Aliza mentioned, that the benefits of good sleep outweigh any, any, any of the concern of a few nights of crying. And in fact, they've not shown any differences among very, very large samples of kids followed from birth across time, so into school age, into middle school, on any outcome. The only group of kids where they do see differences are the kids who aren't sleeping well. Right. So choose so whatever works for you, right? I'll, and one last thing about this 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 question about the twins waking up at ten thirty. Usually, that's a remnant of a dream feed, mm-hmm. um, where the parents have been getting the babies to sleep through the night by sneaking in around ten thirty to feed them, to fill up their bellies, to persist through the night. First of all, I would never, I I wouldn't never recommend a introducing a feed ever that's not. Natural. That's not requisite and natural. Um, but the second part is lots of people do, no harm done, except that now you're going to have to deal with this new sort of artificial night waking just out of total habit. Right, you know, like they, if we got right. up in the middle of the night and had a, a burger, <laughs> Mine, we would, you would crave yeah, food at that time right, after a while. Right, um, but no one does that since college. (laughs) So basically, another thing that you can do as a parent is when you know your baby has had a very full bottle or nursing session before going to bed at night, you can feel confident, assuming you've discussed with your doctor that they're thriving and they're of the right age, that the kitchen is closed, that they don't, that to be a responsive parent means you're you're letting them know a limit. We don't eat through the night. We get good, good sleep, and we have a beautiful breakfast in the morning. So feel confident in that, especially, particularly if it's at 1030 and you've just fed them a mm-hmm. few hours before, that that's just habit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's often very reassuring as a parent to have that last feed be a good one and a, and a full one um, when you are thinking about doing some night training. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, and not because we are in any way— paid for this, we highly recommend, although it pains me that it is bad for the environment, Huggies Overnight. Oh, gosh. Because at seven months old, part of the wake up can often be just like they had heavy pee. And sometimes it's actually happened to both Bronwyn and myself where somebody schedules a session, a private session with us about sleep. And we're like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> you don't even need to do anything. No, we speak we, for two hours. We talk about all the bullet points. And of then, what they can do. right. And, and then we yes. realize they just yeah. have too heavy of pee. And we did not pick that up in graduate school. Yes. But that's so, but that's a, a little wonder. practical tip. Yeah. Um, and it's for whatever reason, just Huggies Overnights. Um, so I'm loath to say that because I know it's I know the, yeah, eco-friendly. And also, you know, some parents are really not, Crazy about the option for their children. Yeah, no, it's the, personal it's not choice. ideal, but it does help with sleep. Yeah. So yeah. maybe you can do something better for the planet in other ways that particular time period when you're trying to work on sleep. All right. Um, thank yeah. you, Bronwyn. Sure. Are we, are we, I think we're, did we're we, we have everyone's great sleepers now. We're, we're done. Yeah, we're done. I mean, we, we, <laughs> have, we have a ton more, but yeah. I think that that's probably enough for today. Beginning. Thank you for coming. Sure. In. Sleep well. I don't have closing notes because the entire episode was like closing notes, but I would love to hear from you. So DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast and let me know if the Q&A format is helpful. Thank you so much for listening and for your kind words. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review and follow me for quotes and clips on at Raising Good Humans podcast on Instagram.